Welcome to the Rich With Purpose podcast, the finance podcast that's about more than just money. I'm your host, Taborjan Rasaya, financial advisor to hundreds of successful clients over the years. In each episode of this show, I speak with other experts in the complex world of money and finance, and together we discuss how you can ensure you make smart decisions with your money. Even more importantly, how to connect those decisions with your values and your purpose in order to achieve everything that is most important to you. Please note that everything we discuss is not personal advice, but general in nature. For the full disclaimer, please visit our website, richwithpurpose.com.au, where you can also register your details to get access to all our free resources. And please hit subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. In episode 12, I speak to Jim Parker. Jim is a regional director of communications with asset manager, Dimensional Fund Advisors. What sets Jim apart, however, is his immense experience in media and journalism, which he has done all over the world. His most recent journalistic roles was with the Australian Financial Review, but he has also worked for the ABC, AAP and Reuters. In this episode, we explore the difference between the commercial media and real journalism. We also discuss noise in the media and how it impacts our ability to make smart financial decisions why us humans are so easily sold into fads, and why smart investing is not sexy, rather something quite boring. We discuss the role of social media and where media is really entertainment pretending to be journalism. And make sure you listen to the end, where Jim gives us his tips to being a smart media consumer and tells us about his own purpose. So if you're interested in learning, about how to be a smart media consumer in an information-saturated world, you will enjoy this episode of the Rich With Purpose podcast. Welcome to the Rich With Purpose podcast, Jim Parker. Hello, good afternoon. Great to see you, Jim, after a little while, but uh, really excited to get your insights from your wealth of experience in the media. We're really wanting to explore today how, as investors, we should be thinking about the information that we see, not just in the media, but all over the place, social media, newspapers, uh, advertising and everything. And um, I think I think it's so hard for us to decipher what's out there now. So um, it's going to be fascinating to get your views on that and, you know, expand on some of the conversations that we've had before so that our listeners can um, uh, ensure that when they're thinking about money and investing, they can do it in a much smarter way. So before we get into that, Jim, I mean, you've got an extensive career in the media Give us a bit of your background and, and how did you get into the world of funds management and investing? Well, just going way, way back, uh, I went into journalism when I was in my early 20s uh, after doing a course at Auckland University of Technology and uh, worked in radio and tape, TV and newspapers and online media for a long time internationally. And after about 25 years of it, I thought, well, lots of people were losing their jobs and they continue to lose their jobs, the industries in a bad way. And I thought I'd branch out. Um, I saw an ad for a funds management company that wanted someone with a background in economics and financial markets as a journalist to help them communicate their ideas. And I thought, well, that sounds like me. And I went and met the company, Dimensional Fund Advisors, and I really liked their approach. I liked their philosophy. 
And I thought, well, that's the story I can tell. And that's pretty well where I ended up. And I've been here for nearly 15 years. Wow. So you would have seen so much over the years in terms of the evolution of how media has changed, I suppose. Yeah. And not just media itself, but financial media as well. Um, Media has changed enormously. It's got a lot smaller in some ways, traditional media, but it's been usurped by social media. And social media now owns most of the advertising dollars that used to go to traditional media. As a result, traditional media has been winding back. Uh, much smaller staff, fewer reporters, fewer editors, less time for fact-checking. Um, social media is basically eating their lunch. And we've seen that in Australia recently with the spat between Facebook and Google and the traditional media companies. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... We're all on social now. We're all on our devices. We've seen the financial difficulties that some of the traditional media companies have come under, less newspapers, less print, all that sort of thing. Uh, what, what, do you, what, what's your perspective on that shift? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it? Uh, what, what do you reckon? Well, my perspective on people talk about media and they talk about journalism. They're not actually the same thing. Um, media is the conduit for journalism. That's what subsidises public interest journalism. And more public interest journalism is a good thing, but most of what we see at the moment is not really public interest journalism. It's basically harvesting people's attention for ad dollars, and that's traditionally what commercial media has always done basically grabbed your eyeballs and sold your eyeballs onto advertisers. That was a business model. But there was a kernel of, of public interest in journalism. A lot of that is gone now. And as a result, people are finding they have less and less faith in traditional media. And at the same time, as I mentioned, social media has basically stolen all the revenue, the advertising revenue from traditional media. And to compete, traditional media is acting more and more like social media. So we're seeing much more clickbait, just trying to get your attention. A lot a lot more very superficial coverage of things. Um, the traditional media can't employ the specialists that they used to do. They just don't have the resources. And as a result, the information is becoming less reliable. Um, you might say, well, that doesn't really matter that much. But if people are making financial decisions on that basis, then it has a significant impact on, on people's bottom line. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, just to be clear on that, I mean, you're so familiar with it, but um, for our listeners and even for myself, so you said you talked about journalism relative to media and you mentioned commercial media. So um, just to reiterate what you said, so commercial media is more about, um, I guess, selling advertising and it's a commercial business in order to make money. And I think you're saying that, the media makes money through selling advertisements to the public and you said getting eyeballs onto those advertisements. So um, in contrast to that, journalism, because I, I guess as a consumer, um, I and everyone else probably just interchangeably thinks about journalism and media as the same thing, but you made a distinction of that. So, so journalism, how would you define that specifically when you're thinking about I guess, proper journalism or whatever you call it? Yeah. Well, journalism plays a public interest uh, duty. You know, like, it's not just like a good fun, independent financial advisor is working for their client, not for a fund manager selling products. A good independent journalist who's someone who's working, looking out for the public interest, irrespective of the commercial pressures that their proprietor puts them under, a good journalist will say, I want to get at the truth and I want to get the truth for the public 
they'll ask questions of authority and they'll keep people in authority, make them, you know, make them account for themselves to the public, ask questions that the public can't ask. And, you know, there's a good old quote, there's a good old quote about the difference between journalism and everything else. Um, you know, journalism is about stuff that people don't want you to know. You know, it's about finding out stuff that is in the public interest and everything else is really advertising or public relations. And this, that's still true. The problem is, is traditional media used to be able to subsidise independent journalism and now it can't. So journalism, a lot of what gets called journalism is really just generating clickbait, getting people looking at ads and selling them stuff and calling it journalism. And it's a real shame. Mm, so I guess it's that uh, you mentioned the word independent and you compared it to our industry and financial advice. And I guess if you're working for a large institution that's pushing a particular product, but even pushing a particular position or strategy or whatever it is, then if, if you're an advisor working for a larger institution doing that, then, you, you know, whether it's subtle or obvious, there are, it, there is going to be a conflict between working for the person that pays you versus working for your client. Um, and I guess in journalism, that's the same, you know, I guess if you're for a commercial um, media company, then they need you to push particular views for the benefit of their advertisers, I suppose. Yeah. Traditionally, there used to be Chinese walls between the editorial side of the media, mm. where the journalists are, and the commercial side where the advertising is. And the, there was a good reason for that, because if you succumb to commercial pressure, you're basically undermining the value of that masthead. And the value of the masthead is the public trust that it holds. But that's become those Chinese walls have really started to come down in recent years. And you see that on Media Watch every week. If you ever watch Media Watch, mm. you're always picking up things that are basically ad. You know, it might be a new diet or a new book or, you know, someone's selling something and there's no real journalistic scrutiny. And the reason for that is often because that company that's selling that product is bought advertising space with the media company. That happens all the time, and particularly on sort of trashy um, tabloid current affairs shows, but increasingly now more in mainstream media. We see that quite often. And in financial media, that can be quite dangerous. Yeah, it's really hard to distinguish, isn't it? I mean, you, you see reputable media organisations, reputable people, reputable or and a perceived reputable um uh, journalists uh, and people that you expect to be journalists, but it, it's very hard to distinguish that. And we don't just see, obviously, there's a podcast about money, but, you know, politics is probably the one that really resonates with me and, you know, the US in particular when, you know, certain politicians or people in power or families, rich um, families or whatever that have control over media organisations, whether it's ownership control or political control or, um, and then, I mean, I don't fully understand the uh, media um, structure in the US, but I just kept hearing Donald Trump talking about um, just to pick on one person, you know, talking about how he likes some media organisations and he doesn't like others and, um, you, you know, uh, that, that's, that's probably a very obvious um, example, but it's so hard as a consumer to know, well, what is the truth and who's 
pushing an agenda, but who's who's reporting the truth. Yeah, that, that's very true. And it's an irony that there is more information than we've ever had in our lives. We all carry around these phones, which are so powerful. We have information coming at it from every angle. Um, you know, it's getting harder and harder to discern what's right and what's wrong. Um, I can offer some guidelines on this, but I mean, one of the best ones is never rely on one source for information. You need to use a range of sources. And my particular approach is to trust individual journalists that I know over many years have been correct. Um, and, and I really do have the public interest at heart, but I never rely on one. I always sort of, you know, compare sources um, because as Donald Trump, you mentioned Donald Trump, he, there were certain media organisations he liked. He liked the ones who agreed with him. And that's not the basis for good journalism. You know, um, you can disagree with a politician, but you can still respect the office. And there's nothing wrong with that. And a politician has to use, has to learn to be, that the role of the media is to question him and ask questions that the public would. And we're seeing examples of this in Australia with the vaccine rollout. It's important that the media actually give people good, reliable information so they can make decisions. It shouldn't be politicised, but frequently now everything is politicised, and that is really bad because it makes it hard for people to know what the truth is. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I guess it's not just, it's easy to, you know, to th- to look at, you know, pe- people selectively taking information that they that agree with them, like as you said, Donald Trump. But I guess we, as humans, we do that as well, don't we? We tend to look for confirmation of our own ideas or values or beliefs, um, and social media feeds into that. I think the algorithms even send you information. Again, I'm not, I'm not a tech head, so I don't understand it fully, but I understand that the, I believe that the social media platforms have algorithms which send you information that is similar to the information that you like or that you agree with or the stuff that you look at. Yeah, that's what's really undermined traditional media. The social media platforms like Facebook and Google are a far, far more effective advertising medium than traditional media can ever be. And in the old days, you put classified ads in the paper. You know, you didn't know whether people had actually read it or seen it. With Facebook and Google, you can target those ads at people, you know, right down to their their age up to, you know, within a year or two. So that can be good in a way. You know, I was looking for shoes on the internet um, a few weeks ago, and everywhere I go now on the internet, the shoe ad is following me around. Well, that's not so bad. But when that becomes things to do with finance, you know, they say you're looking for income-related investment, and suddenly... You know, you Google that up and over the next few weeks on Facebook, these high yield, low risk products, which don't exist, but they're a nice idea, are staring you in the face. I'll give you an example. Last year, it was about two years ago, a group out of the Ukraine were targeting retirees in Australia and New Zealand with celebrity endorsements. Now, these were fake celebrity endorsements. They had Hugh Jackman and they had Gordon Ramsay and a couple of other people. And they were spruiking this really high-yield, low-risk as an alternative to term deposits. And all you had to do was to send them your bank account details. Well, you can work out what happened after that. (laughs) They fleeced people for millions of dollars. And that was through targeting people on Facebook who they knew they were in their retirement phase. They weren't getting their bank dividends. They weren't getting term deposits like they used to. 
And here's an alternative. It's low risk and it's high yield. Well, you and I know that such a beast doesn't exist, but social media has become very, very good at targeting people with that sort of misinformation. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So, Jim, that's that's really interesting background in terms of the media, social media, and a couple of tips in terms of how we need to interpret it. Uh, we'll explore that a bit more um, shortly. But can you tell us a bit about what you call financial noise and what causes financial noise? What is this thing? Well, financial noise, as I was mentioning before, there's a lot more information available at the moment. The the volume of information created on the internet every single second is just mind-boggling. And because there's this really huge demand, uh, unsatisfied demand for more information because you've got to fill up all the space all the time, when it comes to finance, that means you're going to get micro coverage of every little second of every little trade that happens on financial markets. This is very distracting for people who have got a lot of money at stake uh, for their retirement. And that can make people really worried about a lot of short-term stuff. I always talk about the noise versus the signal. So the financial noise is the stuff that Alan Kohler talks about on the news every night. No, it's not wrong what he's talking about. He's, he's a good journalist. He knows what he's doing. But... Um, that's really irrelevant for you. If your if your target, if your horizon is measured in years, what happens on the markets from one day to the next is not really that relevant. And the history of this is, you know, when I first became a journalist, the financial pages, no one ever read them. The only people who read them were people who maybe they had a corporate superannuation plan. And then what happened is they set up, you know, defined contribution superannuation. Everyone had superannuation. They sold off things like Telstra and the Commonwealth Bank. Suddenly, everyone had shares and they had an interest in the share market. And so finance moved from the back pages of the newspaper to the front pages of the newspaper. And the media organisations thought, well, there's really money in this finance coverage. Let's have more of it. In fact, why don't we put a finance spot right next to the weather report every night? Because, you know, people like it and it's like the weather. We can talk about it from day to day to day. That's fine. It's interesting to know what happened in the markets today. I'm not saying you shouldn't be interested, but the problem is that's not really relevant to you as an investor in the long term. You know, whether this company did this or this company did that, that's just micro stuff. It's not really that important. And from the media itself, they see it that way as well. When I was at the Financial Review, I used to say, why are we talking about these individual companies all the time? Unless you've got a lot of stock in that company, it's not really that interesting. Shouldn't we be talking about bigger things? And it's easier for the media to cover little economic data releases and individual company announcements and what happened on the markets today um, to fill this void between the ads. And that's what I mean by financial noise. It's not really that relevant to people. Yeah, it's, you know, it's so true, isn't it, the noise? And as someone who has been investing and studying investments for, you know, for me it's 25 years, but it still astounds me how the media and the news, they, as you said, you know, we get the market reports every morning. This is what the US market did. This is what the Aussie market did. These are the best performers, worst performers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's always some made up reason for something happening, which is always made up. Um, I think I read a headline this morning where it said something like, um, we're expecting markets to drop off because the COVID fears are 
coming back or something like that? Like, how does anyone know, you know, what COVID fears, like really that's what is driving things. Um, so, so there's all these, these silly um, reasons, but we tend to attach, we tend to attach these silly reasons to explain what's happening just because we don't know, I, I guess. Um, there's, a re- there's a really good book by a guy who wrote The Black Swan. Uh, his name is Talib, Nicholas Talib. Yeah, great. And um, he uses this phrase, the narrative fallacy. And this is the idea that this happened because this happened. Therefore, this will happen. You know, we're seeing it recently with bond yields rising. You know, so this means inflation is going to become a major concern. Well, maybe it is, but the market's pricing that based on today's information. Tomorrow, we might get different information and bond yields will go back the other way. I always say to people, you can't predict markets because you can't predict news. And as a former journalist, I know that you can't predict what the news will hold. So if you look at the beginning of last January, every Wall Street analyst got their forecast for the market wrong because COVID happened. But even if they had predicted COVID and the global pandemic, which one of them would have predicted global markets, equity markets, to be at record highs by the end of last year? Yeah, so you've exactly. got to get two, two things right. You've got to predict the news, and then you've got to predict how the markets will react to the news. And that's really, really hard. This is why forecasting and media speculation is just a waste of time. Yeah, well, it's it's the, the opposite's actually happened, isn't it? I mean, if we talked about there's going to be a health crisis, a global health crisis, we would expect share markets to be lower, like yeah. pure and simple. But the opposite has has happened. Yes, there was a dip, but uh, you know, share markets generally have been been really good. Well, this is part of why I, I went to work for Dimensional because, I mean, their view on this is pretty easy to accept. That it's really, really hard to make money at long term investing by trying to second guess markets. You know, as a journalist, that's intuitively right for me because I've seen all the pundits and they'll get it right for a while and they're like the stop clock, you know, they're always going to be right twice a day. Um, And, you know, they're just guessing. Everyone is just guessing. You know, all you really can do is focus on what you can control, but that doesn't make for a very good story. So, you know, I see this from the other side now because journalists will ring me up, you know, because I work for Dimensional and I'll say, you know, what are you guys expecting for the RBA next week? What are they going to do with rates? Well, how do we know? You know, we're not sitting around the boardroom table. And the thing was, even if we did know what the RBA was going to do with rates next week, how do we know what the, how the market's going to react? Maybe mm. something else will happen overnight. The Fed will say something and the Federal Reserve will, will have much bigger influence on the markets than the RBA and that will throw out our forecast anyway. There are so many variables in financial markets that it's pointless speculating. And most of what you see in the media, in financial media, there is some good financial media. I'm not knocking it all. But most of what you see are, are meaningless forecasts and speculation Um focusing on ephemera and things that are totally irrelevant to most people. And then they're not really asking people or looking at the issues that really matter to people, like the cost of investing and the importance of diversification, you know, and how can you get income when interest rates are very low? Should you, should you make that your sole goal? Maybe you should think about cash flow, you know, that sort of stuff, real interesting stuff, which might not be sexy, but for most people, that's much more important. Yeah, it's like a diet, isn't it? You know, it's uh, we're all looking for the next, next best way, or the you know, to lose weight, or get healthy, or you know, build muscle, or whatever. But ultimately, yeah, at the end of the day, no one would sell any 
diets or training programs or anything if all they said every day was eat better, sleep more, um, exercise more. If you do those three things, <laughs> we'll all probably be 10 times better off with our health, but it's not very interesting. Um, so we yeah. tend to look for those look for those sexy diets or the next uh, the next fad, don't we? That's right. And, you know, you saw that um, after the GFC. So before the GFC, it was all about selling, you know, high-yield products. And then after the GFC, it was all about capital-guaranteed products because that's what they can sell. And because that's what they can sell, they spend more on advertising. And then as a result, you get a lot more stories in the newspaper about high-yield products, mm. capital-guaranteed products, whatever is selling at that moment. So finance has become very much like fad dieting, as you mentioned. It's just like the lemonade diet or the, you know, the high low carb diet or the high carb diet or the paleo diet. You know, when it's really just about eating well, having a balanced diet, exercising regularly, getting good sleep, as you say. Very simple. With investment, it's the same, you know. Understand the risk you're taking. Don't take any more risks than you need to. Diversify, rebalance your portfolio, you know, don't pay too much. And stay disciplined. That's it. That's the whole story. But unfortunately, that's not going to sell the financial review every day. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so I guess that's where they get into this. And I guess it, again, it's driven by us, isn't it? As humans, we look for these. Uh, we look for these diets. We look for these quick solutions. We look for um, how can I make money quickly? And and even though intuitively we know. Uh, fad diets don't work. We know that there's no um, secret to getting rich, but we still look for it. I don't know what it is in us. And because we look for it, I guess people still, or the industry or the media, they know that there's money to be made, the financial industry as well, our industry, financial advice. You know, there's money to be made if you can tell people what they want to hear, which is we can make you rich through something we have and therefore can sell it, which again, never works um, and only makes money for the people selling their wares, I guess. Yeah. This gets back to what we were talking about before. It's, it's all, it's the attention economy. You know, we've got enough data. We've got more information than we could ever need. That means the scarce commodity in the world at the moment is your attention. People's attention is really, really valuable. How do you get people's attention? By triggering the two strongest emotions, fear and greed. You know, and if you keep pushing buttons that excite people's fear and greed responses, you're going to get their attention. That's how it works. Now, not journalists aren't that cynical as a rule, but the media organisations that employ them, which are increasingly desperate for dollars because Google and Facebook took it all, are going to resort more and more to clickbait. I've got friends who work in the media still, and they're being told they have to generate so many stories a day and get so many clicks. And that's become really the basically the the the, the, the test of what a good story is, is how many clicks it gets, which is just mm. rubbish. It shouldn't be about clicks. It should be about how good that story is. Is it a good story? Is it something that people didn't know before? Does it help them make better decisions? If it doesn't, then if it doesn't help you make better decisions and it doesn't help your long-term health and welfare, turn it off. It won't do you any good. Yeah, so we're talking about how, I guess, how the commercial media, who's out to make money compared to journalists, but, but how the commercial media manipulates us as consumers, I suppose. So can you spell that out again? So, so again, we all, because we know all of this, I think everything that we're talking about, all of our listeners, we, we all know about this stuff, but 
we still, it's so easy to still fall into no, the trap, isn't it? Yeah. The way it works is this. Um, you're not, the people listening to this podcast are not the customers of the media. They are the product that the media sells to advertisers. They sell their eyeballs to advertisers they, and they grab their data. So the most valuable thing for the media is your data. They want to know what shoes you're buying, who you vote for, you know, how big your mortgage is, you know, what your risk aversion is, how many people live in your house. Are you thinking about buying a new house? Because that's how they can sell you stuff. And the more information you share on the social media platforms, the more data of yours they've got and the more they can sell you other stuff. And unfortunately, that's not just about shoes. That's about how you invest for the long term. It's about who you vote for. It's about big questions of life and death that affect a democracy. And that's when it gets really serious. We saw this with Facebook and the Cambridge Analytica story in UK a few years ago after Trump was elected. They were actively manipulating people and stealing their data on Facebook to manipulate election outcomes. Now, that's not a good thing. And it's probably about time, you know, for the big social media companies to be reined in and broken up. I really think that's that's what's going to have, have to happen in the coming few years. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if it does. Mm. So with your many years in, in the industry, Jim, when because you started off, when, when, where did you start off? Um, I started off in radio in New Zealand in 1980 and, uh, you know, covering everything, you know, <laughs> I became a finance journalist later on um, because that's where the work was and ended up doing an economic history degree um, because I wanted to specialise in financial journalism. So, yeah, I started off way back then with different days mm. then. Yeah, so... You know, how, how do we as consumers know which media to trust? I mean, I guess all media is commercial, even if you know, it, whether or not you're paying for, for the media or for subscriptions or whatever or not, are they all commercial? Uh, you know, how, how do we well, identify these journalists we can trust? Yeah, the ABC is not. So that's why public broadcasting is so important. You know, you've got to have something that's not dictated to by commercial you know, uh, interests. But that doesn't mean there aren't good journalists in, you know, um, Nine, which used to be called Fairfax, and there are good journalists even in the Murdoch organisation. Um, but uh, you, you have to sort of learn to know who are the good ones and who are the bad ones. But there are a few things that you can do and and to um, work out what's good and what's not. Because, um, Jim, but, even, even in those public, um, so the ABC or other non-commercial networks, or media organisations, you know, is there still influence? Is there still position? We, we do, you know, find that they probably have a certain position or demographic that they cater towards. Um, I guess we still have to be aware of that. To- well, yeah, what, there's one myth about journalism is that there's complete objectivity. There's no such thing as complete objectivity. Everyone's got an agenda in some way or another. Some of them are a little bit bit better at hiding their agendas. Um, You know, the ABC is not perfect, but I think a country without a public broadcasting system is not good. You need something Mm. that that is non-commercial, that, you know, the market will look after the market. You know, where there's money to be made, it will look after it. But, you know, the long-form investigative stuff that Four Corners does and what Media Watch does, you wouldn't see that on commercial television because it's not economic to make that stuff. 
it's economic to make stories about crash diets, you know, and used car salesmen and things like that. So, you know, public interest journalism is expensive to make, and we need that for democracy. It's and people say you're in the journalism business. No, I wasn't in the journalism business. Journalism is not a business. It's subsidised by, you know, either advertising or taxpayers' dollars, but it has to be paid for somehow. The trick is making sure that it's independent of commercial and government pressures. And even with the ABC, you can argue that it's increasingly under government pressure because they keep cutting its funding. Mm-hmm. And I guess I guess it's always another view. It's another view with a different agenda, with it from a different perspective. And if it's a non-commercial perspective, right? Yeah. So you know, I was going to get share with your listeners some tips for um, you know what to trust and, yes. and what you should do. There are certain red flags that you should watch out for. The first thing, if you see something and you're not quite sure about it, ask yourself. What sort of content is this? Is it news? Is it opinion? Is it humour? A lot of what's sold as news these days is actually an opinion. Hmm. And the reason you see so much opinion in newspapers and radio and television is because it's cheap. Essentially, it's cheap to make. It's much easier for someone just to stand up and tell you what they think about some public issue or finance or whatever it might be, what stocks to buy, than it is to go out and dig and ask questions and investigate because that's that takes time and money. So firstly, ask yourself, is this news, is it opinion? Then have a look at who's being quoted. Is the journalist quoting anybody? If they're not quoting them by name, ask yourself why. So this is quite a good one with political stories when you say sources in Canberra say, well, who said? Why won't they put their name to it? Oftentimes, the reason that people won't put their name to these things is they're trying to manipulate the news agenda. If they're not prepared to be accountable for what they're saying, then you should treat that information with a grain of salt. Mm. Make sure that there are facts to back up the claim. If the journalist is making some claim about this has been the best performing investment in Australia in the last five years. Well, where's the facts to back that up? You know, analysts say this 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 is the best thing place to put, put your money in the five years ahead. Based on what? Who says this? How many people say that? Um, you know, go to the ASIC website and see what they say about that particular thing. So are there facts to back up the claim? Check out the author. Who's writing it? Is this, are they pushing a certain barrow? Is, is this something they write about before? What are their qualifications? What do they know about this? Because sometimes the journalists are just parroting something that someone has told them and they have a very loose understanding of it themselves. And it's a good story. So they they run with it without actually checking it. Um, check your own biases. We mentioned this before. You know, everybody, no one's pure of heart. We all have a certain leaning one way or the other. Mm. We've got predefined sort of inclinations, you know. So what's your own bias? Are you sure you're, a, you're an objective observer yourself? And that's a very important mm. question to ask yourself. I mentioned fine writers that you trust. There are some really good journalists in Australia. You know, Laura Tingle is doing some fantastic work for the ABC. Alan Kohler is a good journalist. I mean, he he has to write, write those market reports. It's not great. But, you know, when he sets down to it, he did a great uh, long-form piece on the future of retirement for the 7.30 report recently. There, there are good journalists around. Um, but there's also some reputable news outlets. And if you just want straight financial news... I'd go to something like Reuters or Bloomberg, and they're both available online. I think Reuters is free. Bloomberg, you have to pay, um, as you know, and it's not much to, to subscribe to, and you get a certain amount of free articles a month. They're pretty straight. 
And another thing, if you see something that you don't trust or you don't like the look of, you know, do a Google search and see what other people are saying about that. Google News Search, if you see that's the only organisation that's publishing that story, well, maybe it's exclusive, but if it's a really good story, someone else will pick it up. So check different sources. There's just a few things that you can do to, to, you know, make sure that you're getting the right information. Yeah, there's a couple of really good ones you mentioned there which resonate like understand our own biases, understand our own perspectives. Um, as uh, when we when we look at behavioural finance, we, we know that our own biases, upbringing, background, culture, uh, financial upbringing, um, you know, particularly in our formative years, actually is one of the biggest contributors to our financial success because it influences our decision-making. Um, and so those things are so powerful when, I guess, as a consumer of information, media, journalism, advertising, as consumers, we have our own automatic views and biases which can influence which information we absorb and listen to and which ones we don't, which can work against us, right? Yeah, and that can happen with your own relatives. So a big issue mm. that I find with finance is, Someone will say to me, oh, my uncle just sent me this great, you know, piece on Facebook about this new investment and it sounds fantastic, you know. Be very careful about that stuff because mm -hmm. often that that stuff is just trying someone trying to tell you something. And if it sounds too good to be true, it usually is. That really applies. IPOs is a big one. People get into these initial public offerings. You know, there's a lot of hype around IPOs and investment banks usually, you know, if it's a really good one, you won't get any stock of it. If it's a bad one, you'll get plenty of stock will be available. So you have to be careful with things like IPOs and things that sound, you know, almost too good to be true. That's mm. because they usually, because they are. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think in line with that and, and similar to some other things we talked about, you know, when you're looking at, you know, clickbait or quick information in terms of investments and finances and forecasts and um, things that sound really interesting, um, you know, we've just got to be really careful. I, I studied in university uh, financial econometrics, which is the financial forecasting of financial variables. And the one thing I learned out of it, it doesn't matter how complex the modeling is and uh, how, yeah, how complicated the statistical model is and, and, and how much data you have, you can't predict the future. And Too many you know, variables. Can predict, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the weather's hard enough to predict, even though we know that we have four seasons and we know the, um, you know, the sort of direction that the weather's going to come. But financial markets aren't like the weather. They're not, they're, they're not a scientific um, phenomenon. It's, it's randomness. Um, which reminds me of, you mentioned um, Nazim Taleb who wrote The Black Swan. Uh, he wrote another book, which, which I really enjoyed called Fooled by Randomness. And it just talks about how most of the things in financial markets, well, nearly everything is random. It's just that we fool ourselves into thinking and believing that things are less random than they are, which means that we think that we're able to interpret data and predict things out of that data when in reality they are truly truly random um yeah that that was a really good book another really good book like that is um uh thinking fast and thinking slow by yes. kahneman yep. who was a nobel laureate and he talks about all the little behavioral um things that we do and one of them is the recency effect people tend to be most influenced by whatever just happened so you know they'll, they'll listen to alan kohler on the news at night and they'll say you know 
bond yields steepen today. Interest rates are going up, folks. You know, inflation's on its way. And then they run off to the financial advisor and say, what are we going to do about this? You know, my response to that mm. stuff is the market's already done the worrying for you. You know, let the markets do the worrying. By the time you do something about it, the markets are off worrying about something else. So you're always chasing your tail. That's the recency effect. You know, we mentioned the narrative fallacy, but there's also the confidence effect that people tend to be over, overly confident, just like everyone thinks they're the best driver in the world. Everyone thinks they're the best investor in the world. And a lot of this is fed by the media that there's someone out there that's sort of like the tiger woods of money management. And, you know, they just do everything right. And, and um, you know, all their forecasts are correct. But such a person doesn't exist. You know, I say to people, look at Warren, Warren Buffett. You know, Warren Buffett, when, when people ask him, what should I do with my money? He says, stick it in an index fund, you know, and forget about it. Mm. Put it away, you know, because the more you fiddle with it and the more you try and second guess yourself and try and be clever, the more you spend and then you're falling flat on your face. It's just, just not sustainable. Mm. And unfortunately, the media encourages that sort of behaviour. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the thing that most people don't realise is that, you know, in most in most things in life, if you work hard, you study hard, you work hard at a craft, uh, you put a lot of time and effort into something, you will get better and better at doing it. But investing isn't like that. Um, investing, it's not like oh, if you if you train harder at investing, you will become a better investor. Because of the randomness of investing, um, it, it just doesn't it just doesn't work like that. You might learn more, you might have more specific knowledge about particular things, but working harder and smarter doesn't give you any additional ability to predict the future, which is ultimately, if you think about all the stuff that's out there, whether it's from experts, whether it's from the media, um, about how to make money, most of it talks about what's going to happen tomorrow, what's going to happen in next month, what's going to happen next year which is predicting the future and it is not possible to predict the future. We all know that again, but mm. we tend to fall for that trap. What, what I tell people is they say, well, what do you think about this? And I say, well, look at the price. You know, what is the price telling you? Mm. you know, someone said they had $100,000 and they were going to tell their son to put it in the Commonwealth Bank or invest in Commonwealth Bank shares. And I said, you're going to put it in one stock, you know? And they said, well, isn't it a good stock? And I said, oh, it might be, but it's priced pretty high you know it's got the it's expected return is low because it's priced this was a couple of couple of years ago and i said mm. he might be better off putting it in an etf a global etf and just leaving it you know and and then you know basically rebalancing once in a while and they said well that doesn't sound very exciting i said well if you want excitement go to the casino <laughs> go to the races if you want excitement you shouldn't probably go near the share market because unless you want to really want to speculate and gamble but call it gambling call it speculation that's not investment Mm. Um, and people often encouraged by the media to see the share market as a sort of place to go and play with their money. And there's a role for that. If you've got money to lose, you know, go and have a go and have a punt. But that's not investment. Your investment's something different. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Jim, one thing that I wanted to ask you about was we have, um, you know, we have really good journalists. We have other people who work for commercial media. We've also got experts who, you know, whether it's experts in money, whether it's, you know, financial advisors or economists, you know, we've even got doctors and uh, lawyers and, you know, people who are professionals, but, you know, genuine experts. Is it, I, I was just contemplating, it, it seems to be harder and harder these days to know 
who are the experts and who are the journalists? Because we do get this, you, you, you get experts who are trying to build a media personality. So, you know, doctors who have TV shows that go and tell people what to do with their um, health. Uh, you got lawyers, you got, you know, people in the money money world who uh, go on TV and radio and, um, you know, we've done, you know, we've done um, work in that space, but we're not journalists. We sometimes give our opinion. Well, you, you were a journalist. Um, and then you've got journalists who specialise in particular things and uh, you could have someone who has a genuine interest in health and wants to talk about health, but they're not a doctor. You know, how, how do can, can listeners and consumers manage that um you, you may you may you know there, there are certain people where we probably wouldn't really know particularly in the money in investing business whether they're actually an expert or whether they're someone who is uh, who's a journalist who's now appears to be an expert yeah, yeah that's one thing when i was a young journalist you'd put experts and experts say in copy and if you had a sharp editor they say who are these experts and why are they experts you know who are they name them <laughs> and mm-hmm. th- that's something we've lost in journalism is the skeptical editor you know the different what's happened now is that basically the media has been disintermediated and that's allowed experts to have their own platform you can have your own youtube channel you can have your own blog you can have your own podcast you don't need to go through the media as much and that means there are a lot of experts out there who are selling things um, under the guise of what looks like straight information um, now it's not all bad there are some very very good experts out there who are using the platform that they have to get good information out there my advice on that stuff is never rely on one person. You know, if there's an economic expert on a particular issue, there'll bound to be someone who'll tell you something completely different. And really that's what we've lost with losing journalism. Journalism has basically been lost for most purposes now because the role of a journalist was to speak to a range of people and offer a range of views and let the public make up its own mind and give them some supporting data as well. But if everyone is just selling their own version of things, it becomes harder and harder for people to know what's what. Um, So what I tend to do is I rely on a range of sources and a range of different people. I often look at views that I normally wouldn't agree with because that challenges me to think about whether what I think is right. So you have to have a bit of an open mind, I think. Yeah, I think going back to your tips, which we might put those tips in the show notes, Jim, uh, of how to be a better consumer. But I guess part of that is because it's easy to say you're an expert, anyone can say it. I guess what's really important to do is to check the actual credentials of a so-called expert before taking their word for it. Because I guess you mentioned things like YouTube as well. You can set up a YouTube channel. You know, I could go and set up a YouTube channel and talk about, um, you know, diet, for example. And if I if I'm really, you know, entertaining and say some interesting things um, or outlandish things, I might get lots and lots of subscribers to my YouTube channel, even though I've got absolutely no expertise in diet whatsoever. And I still might want to do it, even if I'm not selling something specifically, because the more subscribers I get, the more money I'll get paid by YouTube advertisers. But for a consumer that isn't thinking through these things and thinking through the steps that you've just articulated, it would be so easy to just see that person on YouTube and say, well, they've got lots of, they've got millions of people watching their show and 
they're they're not selling anything. They're just giving me information. But well, they are selling, they're selling them. They're they're selling themselves as a brand. That's what they're selling. And um, yeah, that's right. And and really, the big in the attention economy, you know, which is what I think what this is all about. The attention economy. We shouldn't just talk about media. The business model of a lot of people on the internet is to create outrage and disagreement. So they want half the population to agree with them and love them and half the population to absolutely detest them. The worst thing is, is people for them to say, well, that's quite reasonable. You know, instead of I have a lukewarm reaction, they just want a reaction. Then this explains people like Andrew Bolt or Alan Jones in Australia. They are basically entertainers. And, you know, you might agree with what they say. You might disagree with what they say. The worst thing is that people are sort of, oh, yeah, that's interesting, but it doesn't really engage me. Their job is to engage people and to be controversial. And the controversy and the outrage is what sells the advertising. If they weren't controversial, they wouldn't keep getting shows and radio and TV. So that's really mm. what this industry is about. It's about building attention, grabbing people's attention, sometimes by saying deliberately outrageous things that will have half the audience writing in. I'll tell you a story. I used to work for the Financial Review, and I was sort of the editor of the online version of the Financial Review. And we'd, we'd look at, part of our job was look at all these editors' comments coming in, letters to the editor. You get someone coming in with a letter saying, I'm never going to read by your newspaper again because I really disagreed with what this particular columnist said. It's outrageous. That's it. I'm boycotting your newspaper. Three months later, that same person would write back and saying, I'm never going to buy your newspaper again. Every time I read that columnist, my blood pressure goes through the roof. That's exactly what they want. They want mm. people to be engaged. The worst thing you can be if, as a successful media person is to be someone who's totally reasonable, you know, back everything with facts, doesn't doesn't say anything too outrageous, you know, sees both sides of the argument, you know, is sort of balanced and accurate and reasonable. That's just bad for ratings. Now, what's good for ratings is outrage and opinion and divisiveness that gets people watching. And that's the mm. problem. Which isn't journalism, that's commercial media. That's how you make money out of Entertainment. It's entertainment. Yeah. It's, if you look at it, as we were talking about finance before. It's analogous to the difference between speculation and investment. So your speculation is your is your media entertainment. That's short term hits. It's, it's a sugar rush. You know, it's either going to get your adrenaline pumping. You, you're going to get really, really angry, or really, really happy, or really, really greedy, or really, really fearful. That's speculation, and that's also entertainment. Long-term investing tends to be a little bit boring. It tends to be both sides. It tends to be, well, bad things can happen. Therefore, I need to diversify. I don't know which sector in the market's going to go right. And cost is one thing I can control so I can keep that down. That's sort of boring. And I have to think about things like taxes. It's really, really boring. People are nodding off by the time you're talking about that stuff. It's not exciting, but it's the truth. And unfortunately, sometimes the truth is quite prosaic. And for the media, that's a really hard proposition to build a business around, particularly when you've got Facebook and Google eating your lunch. That's the fact. It'll be interesting to see how that evolves, doesn't it, with social media and how as consumers we understand, you know, people, it is more publicly talked about the control of that, that these social media giants have. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how that evolves. Um, people don't appreciate people don't appreciate how big and powerful these companies mm. are. If you look at the market capitalization of Alphabet, which owns Google and Facebook and Amazon and Apple and Netflix, compared with say the New York Times or 
you know, even News Corp, they dwarf those companies. They, News Corp used to be one of the biggest media companies in the world. If you compare it with mm. Facebook and Google, it's a minnow. It's so small. These are very, very powerful companies. And they control in Australia, well, globally now, about 80% of the advertising revenue that used to go to traditional media companies now goes to Facebook and Google alone. That has huge implications for reliability of the information that we receive. And that's why it's so important that people are aware of this stuff and that they're smart consumers of media. I'm not saying turn it off completely. I'm saying exercise skepticism, know who to trust, and, and, and take a variety of sources. And most of all, don't get your news off social media. Mm-hmm. And it's been really interesting. I mean, we've been through COVID um, last year and a lot of sort of stuff well if we were all stuck at home to a certain extent particularly in melbourne we were stuck at home for for quite a long time and where you know people are watching the news people are watching the press conferences people are trying to um i was going to say people are trying to feel better about what's happening and learn about what's happening but i don't even know if it's that i'd you know whether it's just trying to stay connected or trying to find what they need to be doing or what's going to happen but you, you know, it, a lot of that kind of media still became more entertainment and, you know, does entertainment could be in a good or bad way. But um, I know we, you know, I made a deliberate decision to not not pay too much attention because it just felt like it was all always big headlines, always attention-grabbing stuff, but not necessarily any, you know, fundamental, sensible stuff coming through. Yeah, I think I think one thing I say to people, and this is one of my other tips, is to detox from news and distractions occasionally. You know, unplug your phone. You know, put your phone in a drawer, turn off notifications, you know, download a usage or a filtering app. You know, don't look at it so frequently. Um, the more the more you look at it, you know, you need to stay informed. We all need to stay informed as citizens, but most of the stuff that we look at. We don't need that level of detail. We don't need that level of information. I have to emphasize, I'm not saying that people shouldn't be curious about the world. That's good to be curious about the world. But a lot of the time, all what we're doing is we're raising our anxiety levels unnecessarily about things we can, can't control. We can't control what's going to happen in the market day to day. You know, apart from voting once every three years, there's very little we can do about the government. You know, we can we can write letters to the editor to express our, but we we just have to control what we can control, and and that means that, you know, sometimes you have to realise that you're you're building yourself up into a state of anxiety that that becomes unnecessary, and the media companies know that. You know, it's in their interest to keep you on edge. They want your attention. They want you tuned in all the time, and that's not necessarily good for your health. Yeah, and I guess with social media having information in our face all the time it's it's and it's as you said it's harder work to know it's harder work to do the hard yards to find the the better information um and therefore it's easier just to be and it feels like you're staying informed and easier to just be scrolling through facebook or instagram or whatever as opposed to actually uh sourcing the best journalism yeah um, for us to be able to learn and be informed 
there's a great word called doom scrolling. You know, doom scrolling is when you're just scrolling through Facebook and, you know, Twitter or whatever. And, oh, I can't believe what this person just said. Oh, I can't believe this. And oh, look what this politician has said now. And, you know, oh, look what the markets did. And, you know, there's been a sell down in the last 15 minutes. And, you know, this, this is going to be the end of the world. Because people are looking at it all the time, it takes on much greater importance. You need to reduce the windows that you look at news. Maybe look at it once a day for 10 minutes in the morning and then forget about it. Get on with your life, you know. If you're really irate about it, write a letter to the editor or start up a blog, you know, to get it off your chest. But don't let it take over your life. It's so important. Um, I've been bagging social media a lot, but there is one good thing about social media, and I think that's important, is it allows the audience to talk back. You know, part of what you're doing today with this program is, you know, sharing other views and, and hearing them. Um, that's a good thing. You know, anybody can start a podcast. Anybody can write a blog. Anybody can, you know, can they don't have to rely on traditional media to do that. So that means more voices. And I think that's a good thing for democracy. It also means it keeps journalists on their toes because the audience can say, hey, why didn't you ask that question? I'm really interested in this outcome. You know, you fe featured the budget, but you didn't talk about this because that's important to my family. You can do that now. You can talk back. So it's not all a bad thing. Use your voice, use it effectively, but don't let it take over your life. Mm, and, I, and I think that's really important. You know, when we talk about don't let it take over your life, um, this is a podcast about money, but about purpose. And, and the whole premise of it is to help people think a bit differently about um anything to do with money and this particular episode, you know, to give people a different way to think about how they consume the media and uh, interpret journalism in the media. So the reason why the this podcast exists and the reason why we think it's important to change or influence the way that we think about money and other issues is that it's so easy to get caught up in the rat race and be sitting there, what did you call it, doom scrolling? Was it, uh, you know, on Facebook and, and the, what does that do? The only thing that it doesn't actually make us informed. It, all it does is it takes us away from the things that are most important in our lives. And it takes us away from things like our purpose and our values. And if we could get better at consuming journalism and the media in a healthy way, um, we will be able to focus more on our purpose and values and, um, you know, live the lives that we want to live. Yeah, that's really good advice. I mean, I, I'm one of the worst people for this because often my wife will catch me sort of shouting at the TV. It might be Q&A or something like that, which is effectively trolling its own audience these days with just outrageous opinions. And she says, turn it off, just turn it off. I turn it off. She says, now take a deep breath. Tell me what book you're reading at the moment. And suddenly I realised, well, I didn't need to watch that. That was just making me really, really angry. And yeah. they know that. And so, you know, I think it's a good argument sometimes if it's, it's a really good book, which everyone should read. It's called Stop Reading the News, A Manifesto for a Happier, Calmer Life. And this, the chap who read it, who wrote the book, says basically news gives you a quick hit. It's like a sugar hit. It doesn't have a lot of substance. If it doesn't help you understand the world and it doesn't help you make better decisions, give it up or look at it far less frequently, catch up with it once a week, you know, have a look at it on the weekend. I often read The Economist because it provides me a perspective on the week's news that I wouldn't get if I was looking at it all the time. So I think that's really good advice. If it doesn't help you understand the world better and it doesn't help you make better decisions, 
didn't give it up. Detox at least for a while. Mm, no, that's great, Jim. Um, so th- I think this has been a really, really great conversation. Um, I've learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners have learned a lot. And um, we'll put some of the, we'll put those books in the, in the show notes. We'll also put a list of your tips to, uh, to try and be better consumers or better for ourselves, you know, better consumers of journalism and media in the show notes as well. So check those out on the website, richwithpurpose.com.au. Um, but before I let you go, Jim, this, as I said, this is a podcast about purpose and we know that, you know, each person has a different way that they define their purpose and their values and how we define our purpose can also change through our life. Um, and, you know, you're someone who's been through different, um, different organisations, different industries. Um, how do you define your purpose at this stage? I think it's nothing more than just live for the moment, you know, enjoy the moment that you have right now because you'll never get a moment like this, you know, you make the most of it um, because, you know, we saw with COVID last year, people's lives can change. I'm reading a book about 9-11 at the moment called The Only Plane in the Sky and it's just basically survivors' notes and their, their view and their experiences of that time and it just shows you how quickly things can change. I've read another great book by a guy called Alan Watts. He was a British philosopher, used to be a priest, then he became an exponent of Zen Buddhism. And his view was that the present is really all we've got. And we've got to stop thinking about the future, worrying about the future or regretting the past. There's nothing we can do about that. It's gone. And the future's not here yet. And this applies to investment as well. A lot of what we worry about, we don't need to worry about. Make the most of the moment that you have and that will make life a lot saner and, and you can live a lot better and enjoy it for what it is. Wonderful. Thanks for sharing that, Jim. And no thanks problems. for sharing thanks for sharing all your knowledge and experience. Um, and I'm sure we've uh, all learned a lot lot for it. Great chatting again. Thank you for listening to this episode. Our aim is to share the knowledge with as many people as possible. So please share it with everyone you know. And if you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and visit our website, richwithpurpose.com.au to get access to all our free resources. See you next time.